it is value after hours. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. No idea what it is, Australian Eastern Standard Time. I think it's really, really early. I think it's like 3.30 a.m. Um, Bill is out today, and uh, so it's only going to be Jake and I. What's happening, buddy? Super concentrated portfolio today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend this level of concentration. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. This is how you get take a zero. Uh, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we had a couple couple fill-ins lined up as backup hosts and then uh, had some late scratches in the lineup. So you guys are stuck with two. Ian, Ian uh, isn't feeling well, so he's, um, he's going to he's, – will rejoin us at some point in the future. Um, yeah, so the big news. So the, the second comment here after Katmandu – oh, no, there's a few. Sorry, I missed, I missed a few early ones up the top there. Uh, Ali Baba and Charlie Munger, his on his his ongoing love affair with that stock. Or what? so what he what he's done is he's doubled down twice as it's tanked, and it's now I think it got down as low as seventy five, and then he has, I think he's that was close to his life because where he might have bought it again, and then it's bounced. Uh, it's like one hundred and ten bucks or something, and he's chopped the stake in half. What do you yeah, make of that? Uh, yeah, I don't. Hard to say. Like, what's all this? What happened to never sell? Or <laughs> uh, maybe he felt like it was. Maybe the world changed, and he changed his opinion a little bit. I mean, there's definitely some risk has been come to light a little bit as far as geopolitics in the last few months. So maybe he reassessed a little. I don't know. Do you think that was? Do you think that was but... not obvious beforehand? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe he was surprised by how much sanctioning that the U.S. did, and that then therefore, like that, added another layer of risk that you know maybe the world would decouple more likely to decouple a little bit. I don't know. I mean, lots of different. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a genius? <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like. It looks like the way that someone who's just come into the market trades, though, doesn't it? Like just to double down yeah. a couple of times, and then when you get the little bounce, to like I just got to get back to break even, and then I could sell. <laughs> break even, get rid of the uh, get rid of the margin. I, I hope we'll find out in a couple of weeks at uh, at Berkshire, and then you we'll. Someone's going to ask the question. Someone's going to ask for sure. He's not going to say this is a Berkshire meeting. Those questions you can direct to me at the DJ Co meeting. No, I bet he'll answer it. I think he'll. Because he seemed very unwilling at that Daily Journal meeting. He was just like, he, he gave the answer that everybody who had a gigantic position in a company and ran a company would like to just say to everybody else, like, just don't worry about it. We, we've got it <laughs> under control. Yeah. But they were fairly, fairly reasonable questions, I thought. It's a very big stake using margin. How about this? What if... Um... What if there was something internal investment possibility within Daily Journal that he thought was a better risk reward scenario? Like there are other capital allocation decisions to be made there. So maybe he saw the chance to push some money in on the business side and decided that was better use of funds. Thank you being very kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw Charlie under the bus. On the other side of the transaction. So my topic for today is gonna be um the 
the Buffett acquisition of Allegheny um, or the Berkshire acquisition of Allegheny, the, the narrative about the way that those deals come about is published with the SEC or it's part of the filings with the SEC. And uh, Business Insider grabbed the filing and has kind of written up the, the way that that the way that that came about, and you can see how Buffett negotiates. I just thought it was an interesting, an interesting. Um, I don't think that anybody's going to learn anything new. It's just the way that Buffett negotiates, but it's good. I think for your own purposes, for your own negotiations, it's just interesting to see how he does it. I was never aware of that filing uh, idiosync, you know, idiosyncrasy of uh, having to explain the narrative before. I've never seen that. Yeah, I, I, I go and look at them occasionally to see what happens. They're all fairly, they're all very vanilla. There's nothing particularly interesting in them, but it's it describes how they meet, what what happens, what they discuss to huh. some extent, and then the outcome of the uh, like how well documented is it? Is it like at this date, um, you know, on we had a yeah. meeting and these people were present and yeah, just to, there, there is a lot of that in there. You must have to take notes as it goes along. I don't know, I don't know what purpose it it serves if there's a uh, corporate advisory M and A attorney on. Let us know what that's what's happening there. Yeah, is it like antitrust potentially, or like uh, you know, a fair process was followed to Full acquire disclosure process? Yeah. yeah, probably I would say. Not like a sweetheart deal, or I don't know. The other thing is the inflation. Yeah, inflation is going absolute bananas. <laughs> I saw one thing this morning that said a gun lack. Eric Belchunas, who's at the ETF conference, tweeted this out, and he said that Gundlach said this, that if we calculated inflation the same way we did under Carter, inflation is now higher than it was under Carter. And that was like, that was always the story, right? That that was how Carter lost mm. uh, the presidency was that inflation was running so high. Like, what would the number be then? Like, north of 10? 16. Holy. <laughs> 16. Well, I mean, does that have to do a lot with house prices? Is that the big component that's driving Energy. that? Energy and house prices, yeah. Well, you don't need those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the house price, when you dig into it, the house pricing number was like 4.4% year on year, which to me, like that seems Get the game down a lot. Yeah. Like I don't think 4.4%, that's like, that's pretty standard, isn't it? Like it, it looks more like when I, when I look at, um, when I look at the, I look at some of the luxury, you know, Fred has some data series, and one of them is LA luxury real estate, which I, I track for a variety of reasons. But one <laughs> of them is like, like teasing yourself, or what? <laughs> the, yeah, the definition of luxury is, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not as luxurious as yeah, uh, that's right. the middle of the country, <laughs> livable maybe. But yeah, what, what, what they say is that I mean, I, I'd be looking at that, it's been running at like 20% year on year for a, for a few months, maybe a year now. You know, each each monthly update is like a twenty percent year on year, so I don't know where they're getting four percent. I guess this area is, you know, maybe maybe these places run up more, but four point four percent seems like a big miss to me. Yeah, that's quite a discrepancy from twenty percent. <laughs> what's your What's your topic? I have a topic prepared on National Cash Register, uh, which is an old company from way back in the day that... Um, what do they do? <laughs> yeah. Well, now they do like point of sale stuff, but at one point they were, they had a 95% market share on um, actual physical cash registers that retailers would use for conducting business. And there's a bunch of good, like this is from a 1906 uh, annual report from NCR 
that uh, that actually Buffett and Munger referenced in like 1998 annual meeting. Um, Buffett said he had it at the office and he's, he thought it was a good report. Uh, so, uh, but we, yeah, we can get into that. Uh, let's do yours first. Let's, let's go through the Allegheny uh, acquisition and notes that came out of that. All right. So this is the, I'll just pull it up. Um, it was a $12 billion, $12 billion deal um, and Buffett did it in about two weeks. So uh, Buffett had dinner with the CEO, Joe Brandon, and the significance of that is that uh, he used to work guy. as, yeah. that's right, he used to work as, he was CEO of General Re. And so he's been sending a copy of his annual letter to, to his old boss and they've caught up for for lunch, uh, for dinner rather, and uh, that was March seventh. So that's that's like just over a month ago. And uh, Buffett's Buffett's wasted little time giving him the bid. It's eight fifty, and then he said, "Of course, it's not subject to financing or geopolitical risk." And Berkshire won't do any due diligence, you know, which is always <laughs> music to the ears of an insurer. Yeah, um, but he said if they hire a financial advisor the fee gets subtracted from his offer and the deal is contingent on both sides moving quickly to craft and close an agreement. So Brandon has to go back to um, the chairman of Allegheny, Jeff Kirby, and then Kirby and Brandon go to meet Buffett in Omaha. And Kirby, who's the chairman, presses Buffett on the price. He says he wants him to raise the price. He doesn't want him to deduct the financial advisor's fee. And he wants him to pay partly in Berkshire stock. And Buffett, and this is quoting from the article, Buffett reiterated the terms of his original offer, indicating firmly he did not intend to change his position on those points. Never split the middle, huh? <laughs> so you can imagine what was said there. So they, Allegheny goes on to, to engage Goldman Sachs. It cost them $27 million, um, which if you spread that over, uh, the bid price reduces it to $848.02 in cash per share, Instead which was the final bid. <laughs> And uh, March 20, they announced the deal um, 14 days after after uh, Buffett made the offer. Allegheny decides against seeking out um, alternative offers before signing the deal um, because they, don't, they know that Buffett doesn't like auctions and they thought he might pull the offer and there was the risk of the deal leaking. I thought there and was so, an open bid period. So there was a ghost shop that came yeah. after the close, sorry, after the, after the, okay. they agreed to it, not after the close. Gotcha. Uh, gave them 25 days to find a, a superior offer. Goldman contacted 31 potential bidders. Um, Crickets. And you know <laughs> so how that far. goes. Uh, I thought that was kind of, a, I thought that was kind of interesting. I yeah. I heard uh, Bloomstrand say that uh, he thought that Joe Brandon might be a nice like bench for a Jeep like a backup in case, you know, a little redundancy in the, you know, next of taking over if, you know, when the Jeet is, is done, which that, that's, that might be, that might've been a good kind of aqua hire in that way. How old's Jeet? I, uh, I think a Jeet's in his sixties. I don't know. I'm sure let's the hive mind will chive in uh, at, with at the Berkshire, right answer. That's, that's, that's spring chicken. You're just decades, getting started. Decades to go. Just getting started, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was an interesting negotiation. I, I like the fact that, and uh, we've I, we know that Buffett prefers cash. Buffett prefers um, he doesn't like auctions. He doesn't, 
and he doesn't really negotiate it. I just, I just like the fact that the the bid price, you know, eight fifty is a nice round number. Eight forty eight and two cents. That's just like I told you. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really telling the 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 Allegheny shareholders like, hey, your your management team cost you two bucks because uh, they wanted to <laughs> to get this advice. I guess you've got to um, you've got to do some you've got to go and do some market analysis to make sure there's nobody else out there who'd bid. Yeah, a there's a little box checking for the board of Allegheny, right? That's a modest sort of two dollars to find out if there's another ten dollars out there. Yeah, or fifty bucks, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I would think that if you were in an, if you were competing against Buffett, and you know that he doesn't raise his bid, and you know that he's he, he, Jane is seventy, according to this. Okay, he's only got a decade or so, a couple of decades left in that case. Yeah, only about three, thirty years left on that guy's odometer. Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying then? I don't no know. <laughs> well, oh the- yeah, if you're competing against Buffett, this is what I was saying. If you're competing against Buffett, you know he's a good investor. You know that he knows these businesses, and if he's bidding for it, you know that it's that he likes it, that it's good, and you know that he won't raise his price. So why not just come in at eight fifty-five? I don't. Well, you could make the argument that it's actually worth more to Berkshire than other insurance companies because they're so well capitalized that now a lot of that statutory capital that's tied up at at Allegheny could probably be rotated into something else other than you know one percent yielding, although rising rapidly, <laughs> uh, bond portfolio. Uh, so you know Buffett could take it and maybe put it to better use potentially, and then therefore the that equity of the the float or the the value of that float then becomes probably quite a bit worth more at that point, and maybe no one else could really do that. That's a fair point. That's in insurance specifically, and 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 in this one specifically. But he bids in other stuff too. Why not just gazump him? I think that people have done that many times before. But that's what I'd be. You know, if I was like Colbert Kravis or someone like that, I'd just be swimming along behind the great white shark, waiting for him to make those bids, Scraps. and then just slide in for a couple of dollars more. Well, isn't that's sort of what people are doing when they hear that you know Buffett bought HP and then they go buy it right away for a little bit more than he probably did, right? That's sort of they're doing that effectively. I think in this market you can just wait a little bit and buy it for buy less. It. Than but I'm sure, <laughs> but like that's 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 not a bad approach. Like Buffett's Buffett's investment universe is is very constrained. Yeah. So I guess you're buying real mega caps when you're doing that. Why Although, not, just- not, not that HPQ is a mega cap at whatever it was, fourteen billion or something. Why not just buy Berkshire and go do something else with your life? Uh, that does make it sound a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> Let him worry about it. Don't, don't have to pay that fee. Don't have to pay that $100,000. Yeah, $100,000. Fee for him to management. He's chiseling you with. <laughs> Dude, so hit us with questions today because we're um, JT and I aren't used to talking for half the time. So No, this is going to be a lot of tap dancing from the two of us. <laughs> is, that, is that time? <laughs> so we're 15 minutes in. Good. <laughs> yeah, time to shut it down. Uh, well, let's yeah, you do- know the. I, I'm sure the Allegheny shareholders would have preferred some kind of stock and cash bid to help shield themselves for some taxes, but um, Buffett wasn't forthcoming with the equity offer of Berkshire shares. Probably no not doubt. surprising, right? If he was, if he was buying back, you know, last quarter, yeah, he's, he's not going to be. Gonna be stock he ain't going to be issuing to you at that point, yeah. right? So, what was the shit? Was it? What was the shoe? Was it brown shoes or what was the shoe? That's a really uninspiring. Oh, they, were, they were 
Dexter shoes. Dexter. Yeah, they were brown later. <laughs> <laughs> but but that that was the that was a all stock deal, wasn't it? Yeah. Those shareholders are just. I mean, I, I imagine if you if you'd swapped that your shoe your shoe holding for Berkshire shares. Yeah, that that was. Uh, I mean, Buffett knows the answer to what that costs everyone, and he brings it up sometimes. But like, it's an ever inflating number of what that costs. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Well, you know, you got to rub your nose in your mistakes. That way, you make less of them. Hopefully. Yeah. Let's do. Uh, let's do your topic, and then we'll. Uh, Pad out the other half hour. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this is National Cash Register, which uh, fascinating history of this company. And this came from uh, my friend Adam Mead, who wrote the terrific uh, comprehensive Berkshire financial uh, compendium. I'm, I forget the exact title of the book. I apologize, Adam, but it's, it's basically the, the complete financial history of Berkshire Hathaway, I think it's called. And uh, he sent he, he has a friend, this guy named Jesse, that's on YouTube, who um, saw Buffett talking in you know the 98 shareholders meeting and Buffett and Munger talking about NCR and this report. And Munger's saying like, God, you could have read that in 1906 and it would have just been blindingly obvious that this was a good situation to get involved with. Like, it's an absolute layup. And, and in fact, I did. Yeah. And in fact, I was I was long to the gills in it. Um, he doubled down twice and then he cut the position in half when it bounced back. <laughs> yeah, later. Uh, so Jesse on YouTube, uh, he went and like was like, okay, like if these guys like this so much, let me see if I could track it down. And, like he couldn't find it. No one had it. And he asked around all over the place. I think actually got in touch with uh, Sean Eddings, who's uh, friends with Ian um, in writing The Intelligent Fanatics. And they have a chapter in one of their books about NCR and John Patterson, who was the CEO. Um, so this, this guy, Jesse, eventually tracks down, like he like calling all these different libraries and all over the place. And I think it cost him a couple hundred bucks to get a uh, like a PDF recreation of it that he's now shared with everybody. Uh, and Adam sent this over. And so I read through it and uh, it's a great read. It's it says it's like 72 pages, but it's really more like 35 because the last you know, half of it is uh, just listing of people who work at the company, basically. Uh, but let's, well, I want to hit some of the highlights of, the, of this shareholders meeting um, or the shareholder annual uh, report from 1906. So it's founded, first of all, like the company already existed. And this guy, John Patterson, who was a, he was operating a general store in this little coal mining town in the 1880s. And he talks about like he had three thousand dollars worth of capital tied up in his general store, and you know they, they had great margins, and yet somehow at the end of the day there was like no profit in this business. Like, what the hell is going on here? Like, where's the money going? And it just turns out like it's you, when you're running without like a cash register, like you just have leakage, like whether it's on purpose or not. Like sometimes just forgetting. Like if, if people would buy on credit back then more often um, directly with a store. Right. And so you go to the general store and like get a bag of, you know, flour or whatever. And like, okay, bill me at the end of the month and then I'll come back and settle up my bill. But like they, people would just forget or like the record keeping wasn't very good. And the a re a register solved a lot of these problems. And so he bought one of these cash registers. And like in the first year, he had $12,000 of profit that like all of a sudden showed up. Right. Like, and, and with no change in the amount of business that was being done. So it was just like a revelation. He realized like, oh my God, this is such a game changer. I'm going, I got to get into this business. So, uh, 
you know, and he gets in there and gets control of NCR eventually. And, and he, the first few years they sold like basically only to grocery stores and cafes. And by 1906, when this, this report was written, like they're selling to all kinds of businesses, like all over the world at that point. Um, in the 1890s, they had sales of $1.8 million. And by 1905, it was $12.6 million. So, you know, like they six X sales and, but I mean, there's like a 14% kager for, for 15 years, not a, like, not like knock your socks off, but still like very, very consistent growth. Just like every year that was better business. Um, and at that point they were all over the world and they were starting to expand into the far East. Like he's talking about how he went on this trip a couple of years ago, which would have been 1904 to like China and just saw, Oh God, there's so many people here. And like, it's like, basically he was long civilization at that point. Like the more that civilization Ooh, came about and commerce. Yeah. That is a good line. Huh? Um, and so what they were going for was the best machines, the most sales, which allowed them to have the lowest prices. So this is basically like, you've heard this scale economy shared that has been popular lately talked about like Amazon or um, some other classic examples of like just getting a big business, uh, like Costco is the Costco, prime yeah. example. Yeah. Right. Like the bigger you get, the better that you can do on the pricing the better that, uh, you know, that you can lower the cost to the customer and then share some of those economies with the customer. Um, at that point, they had 4,000 manufacturing employees, 1,400 sales reps, and they had these sales training schools all over the world uh, that were like training up their sales staff. And um, it's kind of funny to see like basically like a uh, an old balance sheet of this. So they had like, uh, you know, a bunch of acres of land, 14,000, or uh, I can't read my own notes here. Jesus, this is what a mess. Uh, 13 factories, 1.4 million square feet. And every year they were putting on 10 times as many patents as were expiring. So they were just like pouring money into R&D of these, of these cash registers. Uh, what's even more amazing, they had a list of 1 million retail shopkeepers in the US and Canada. And, and Patterson basically invented direct mail. Uh, so like he would like he would send literature to these one million shopkeepers and another six hundred thousand in all the other foreign countries, and so he had like this customer list that early on like no one really had this kind of like data about their potentials, and he would get like they made the the salesmen have daily reports on who they visited, what they think the probability was that they would turn into a customer, and like the number of towns that they visited per year, so they could see like okay is this this rep spread too thin or not? Are they hitting enough of the customers? This is like all early, like sales funnel stuff that like, you know, like probability of sale, like all that stuff that you would see like in Salesforce. CRM, yeah. CRM. These guys were running it in like 1906, right? And crushing it. Um, by the way, also John Patterson invented the idea of uh, like get a receipt with every single transaction. Like that wasn't a thing before. And so now like he's, he's the reason for like why CVS gives us, you know, an entire book <laughs> for... <laughs> when you go buy a you know tube of toothpaste um all right so another thing that they had going on was uh they had this idea of a a welfare work that they called it which is really like early employee wellness programs and like he their factory was like one of the first ones that had like lots of glass windows so that like the light got in and they they had like showers and like uh, a an on-site do doctor like all this medic like almost like early google you know, campus type of amenities that uh, before anyone else had that. And they they had like $3 million in labor costs in 1905, which is about 25% of revenue. 
which anything like 25 to 33% is kind of the, uh, what you could expect for a manufacturing facility as far as like uh, labor capital, uh, labor concentration uh, uh, per, you know, like per dollar revenue, uh, labor intensity. Um, so here's, you, you'll like this one a lot. He would, and this is hilarious. They invited competitors to come to the, their Dayton factory and see what they were up against. Just like come watch what who you're going in business to try to compete with, and basically yeah, like to, to scare them off. Scare them off, like it, like he thought it was a great idea because it saved them money from like wasting money on like you can't compete with us. Like there's no way you're gonna get your cost down as low as we have. Like look at the the ship that we're running here, and <laughs> and also obviously like that allowed NCR to have like 95% market share in 1905. So um, they they carried a two percent dividend and. The rest was basically like reinvested into R and D and waste and manufacturing and ways to lower the cost so that they could like share those economies with their their consumers. Uh, carried no debt, uh, no discounting ever, right? Like they had this deal mm-hmm. where they could say, "We'll pay you a hundred dollars if you can ever find anyone who is able to buy one of our registers for less than what we sell it for," uh, and and other than a five percent discount for paying cash up front. Otherwise, wow. it was like no discounting, right? Like we're, we have the best machines. You're not going to chisel us. Like we're never going to erode this brand by discounting it. Um, and like so they sold these machines anywhere from $25 to $820, different sophistication levels of machine. And so I like tried to back into what that would be today. And you can only go but like the CPI uh, calculator only goes back to 1913 founding of the Fed, right? Um, and so today those numbers adjusted would be $720 up to $23,000 basically. So it's a pretty high priced item uh, in today's dollars, at least uh, for a, for a shop. Yeah. The top end 23,000. That's, that's expensive. A fa- that's a fancy register. Yeah. Um, so here's, uh, this is why Munger, I think liked this NCR situation so much. Not only does this thing save labor, but it, more importantly, it brings morality and honesty to a community because it takes away the, the uh, it, it takes away really like the temptation to to steal and cheat and you know cook the books basically like so it like this idea of bringing morality and making that sort of the default like you could see why Munger's all about that for a society right like it's totally in his like everything that he preaches um, and he he talks all the time in the in the annual meetings about how he despicable he thinks it is that when our professionals allow accounting to decay from reality and become, you know, bastardized and politicized and, you know, all these gross things that have kind of happened at different periods of time, like, especially like the expensing of stock options when they weren't doing that. Um, so he thought that was, this is like the reverse of that. Um, <clears throat> they would give guided tours to like 40,000 people a year that wanted to come visit their, their facilities and see like how this machine was running. Um, and then a little bit, I, like I looked a little bit further into like what happened to NCR over time because it's actually still around as a public company. Um, and 1974, they commercialized the barcode uh, like scanner um, and the ATM as well. Like was an early sort of invention for them that they uh, uh, really like built out. And then they got into personal computers really early on. And then in 1991, they were acquired by AT and T, uh, but. Now they're still they're public, I guess. They must have been spun out of AT and T at some point. I don't know the details of that. I I was kind of late in even realizing they were still a public company. But um, yeah, so that's NCR and uh, this this 
kind of like it's it's amazing to me to see all this stuff and see like there really is nothing new under the sun. Like it's it's all just been kind of repackaged in different way. Like I mean, these guys Patterson's talking about how uh, like they even paid like an efficiency wage basically at that time, like to get a higher quality cut of employee. Like they're doing all the stuff, you know, like thinking about the wellness, like holistic, you know, ESG ish almost kind of like the governance side of things of you know uh, stakeholder as opposed to just shareholders, like all that stuff was being done in 1906 as well. So uh, lest we think that we're all geniuses today that are, you know, summiting new heights, uh, all that stuff's been done before. And, you know, if we, if we could just go back in history and look like we could find a lot of the same stuff that uh, people think is special today. So a couple of good comments here. One is uh, from Dylan Thompson, the new automated registers at Duncan go for $10,000. Mm. I believe that. So not that Far. I guess I guess that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you would think it would technology would uh, lower the cost of the best version of something, right? Of course it's like probably a million times more powerful, but than what the you know nineteen oh six version was at for twenty three thousand. NCR has been cheap on occasion over the last like ten or fifteen years since I've been doing it. Something that I've bought and sold a few times. I don't know if it's the same entity or this i don't know what the relationship is but it's point of sale so it must be it could be related you know it's a like reasonable earner and it just seems to i don't know i don't know what drives it but it gets cheap and expensive you can have a look at the stock chart over the last is it like is it a sh- shower not a grower <laughs> there's a few things like that actually one of the things i want to talk about when buffett buffett bid for hpq Always bought a chunk of HPQ. I saw the funniest. The funniest comment I saw was like after after Musk bought nine percent of Twitter, Buffett decided that to get his printer working, he needed to buy nine eleven percent of HPQ. <laughs> that is pretty funny. I that's, like one, that's one I've held for a while, so I was happy to see. Happy yeah, to you're see a big fella coming behind me. Dog. And uh, it's one of the few that sort of stayed cheap but performed the, the, the whole the whole time I've held it all the way. I've held it since 2019 and before, but, you know. So that, is that, that saying that the underlying business has improved even more than price? Is that? I wouldn't say that the business has improved so much as they've been very good at buying back. I mean, it has grown, but they've been very good at buying back stock. Uh, okay. just You just have a denominator win. <laughs> yeah, the the the, uh, the, the, the the on a per share basis, it's performed, and that's that's what I care about. Yeah. I, I thought it was funny that, uh, you know, we got everybody's out there trying to do JPEGs on the internet and, uh, you know, crypto and all this other stuff and Buffett's buying f- actual physical printers. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It is funny. Like, we, the, the, for a long time, I don't know, it, it was like the, the 90s or the early 2000s. It was like that we're going to get to a paperless office. And it was just like, this is when I was working in law firms in particular, like they were yeah. a million miles away from a paperless office. But now I, I run almost an entirely paperless office. It frustrates me when I got to print something out for some reason. I got a brother, not a uh, not an HPQ. I should have I should have been loyal. Ooh. Yeah, what are you doing? That's you're just not taking money out of one pocket and putting it in the other. <laughs> I think I think I bought but we do we do we do go to uh, Domino's, so the DPZ to to pay off the DPZs. There you go. At like whatever it is, like nineteen dollars a throw for a family of five, pretty good value. Yeah. Um, the other comment that I saw that came through, I'm sorry, I missed the name, but uh, Nintendo was founded in the 1800s. Mm. Let me see if I can find that comment. Is that right? What were they doing in the 1800s? They weren't doing like pong or something back like then. 
bicycles or something. I don't know. That's always the... <laughs> yeah, I can't find. Uh, sorry, whoever left that comment. I've I took a note, but uh, but I, I missed the I missed the exact. Oh, blade. Oh, sorry. Uh, doesn't matter. Let, let it get past. Yeah, I, I um. I think the two the two things that we should talk about are if we go into an inflationary environment, which we seem to be, like it seems to be what was more than transitory. Hint on that one. <laughs> well, a blade, yeah. Nintendo built board games back in the 1880s. All right. Playing cards. Wow. That's cool. I think Nintendo is interesting. Nintendo's, um, I think it's interesting now. I think it's worth worth taking a look at. I like Nintendo for a variety of reasons, but um, it's a little bit, a little bit besides. So I think there's, there's been some argument that it's transitory, right? So the two, the two, the reason that it's hard to pick an inflection, like a turning point in the market, right? Like if you, if you got the turning point in 1980 or whenever the market sort of transitioned from being was was uh, the reverse of this, right? It was heavy commodities, high interest rates. And, low profit um, margins, low valuations. Right, and equities would just smash smithereens. Backwater. And then, if you bought around that time, like the volatility through that change was was massive. Like you would have felt like an idiot for on and off for two or three years there because it. it and that's that's a long that's a long time if you're trying to you know you're waiting it's on a long thesis time to, to play. Feel like an idiot. <laughs> I <can> it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like an idiot for for about twelve years in value, but um, I. Like you, you got to wonder whether that's just bloody mindedness, or whether there's some like whether there's some rationality underneath. And I, I don't know which one it is, but I, I feel like I don't. I feel like I would change my mind if it was like if it was obviously wrong, but maybe not. But the if the, it seems to me that we're in the reverse of that 1980 type market, right, where interest rates are now low and likely rising. Profit margins are very high and likely compressing. Valuations are very high and likely compressing. So, what what do you do as an equity investor for the next two decades or three decades? Well, I think I think that is probably long enough to say that any of those issues of today are washed out. But ten years time horizon. I think you have to lower your expectations considerably as to what you expect to earn as a owner of capital in business. So what you're saying over 20 or 30 years, it's going to be, you, you get back to like, you, you earn what the business earns, but for the next 10 years, there could be this like compression in multiples and compression in valuations. And so do, do you, do you have those like figures off the top of your head? Do you, are you, you know, the, the, the or, or some like directional idea of how that, you know, like revenue growth is probably sure. three so, or four percent, whatever. Yeah, I would say. Um, well, if you look at different time periods, so I mean, this is we did this on the show, like I don't know, three weeks ago or a month ago, with uh, Chris Chris Broomstrand's uh, analysis of sort of ten-year period chunks, and pretty consistently, you can count on three percent contribution of return for uh, sales growth. You can count on a one to three percent, depending on the kind of price level over that time period, dividend yield, and then everything else is going to be determined by change in profit margins 
and change in valuations and or multiples. And that's <clears throat> where you're kind of starting out at a at a profit margin are. 13% right now ish I think is the where we're at. Are we what are we still saying the average is 6 or are we saying 9 or what <laughs> where's the average? Cuz that was for a long time that was like you know you've got this Buffett Grantham yeah, it was and John Hussman of all sorts of right like 6% is right. what capitalism will yield or else something is broken. Right. And I and we've been well over that for like 10, uh, 10 years now yeah. probably. Right. And that's, you know, I think large tech, you know, returns on scale, uh, internet, global internet companies have defied that, uh, what, what we would have thought capitalism would yield. Uh, whether that continues is uh, kind of anyone's guess, I think, at this point. And there's smart arguments, I think, on both sides. Um, but even if you kept margins here, uh, can you keep can you keep uh, valuations up where they are as well? Like call it wait thirty five on Cape right now, right? Something like that. That's we're like five percent under our uh, all time high. That's pretty high. Uh, <laughs> even any regression on that, and you you have to give back a, you know three percentage points per year of contribution to your return that you could expect. I don't know. Like that's sort of what you saw from 99 to 2009 as we worked off excess. Um, so that's that basically like, let's say you had 3% sales growth, uh, kind of GDP ish. You had, you lose 3% from multiple contraction. You get another 1% ish for one to 2% for a dividend yield. Profit margins would not shock me to see them even come back to say like, I don't know, 10% or something, which would still be abnormally high on a really long historical data set. Well, if, if that's the case, and then you know you lose one or 2% there, like you're flat now. There's You are flat for a 10-year period, and it's not that hard to imagine. What's hard to imagine is which of those numbers is going to go higher to provide some kind of outsized return that would get you anything over kind of an expected 6% yield return on a, as an equity holder. Which of those changes is going to happen from here to get you to 6%? I don't see that very easily. Yeah. That's the problem. Everything's really stretched. All of the levers have been pulled. The levers have been pulled. And um, even the... Well, so the other component of that is is share count. And we saw that over the last 10 years, uh, basically a self-LBO by corporate America, like lever up the balance sheet, buy back shares, reduced share count, to drive up EPS to make your make your uh, bonus as the management team, right? If you're linked to EPS, uh, I, can you pull that lever again? Like you're going to re-lever even further from where we are of the corporate balance sheet? Boy, that starts to get pretty tough to. The imagine. funny thing is, that I would Especially quite if rates like go up. The really undervalued stuff that I hold, I would really quite like them to do some of that stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't necessarily need them to lever up. I just just take the free cash flow and use it to buy back some stock and do that consistently. Because when you look at companies that have done like, done that, like, you know, the, the O'Reilly yeah. and AutoZone right. as like classic examples of just buyback machines and, and HBQ too yeah. has, has been doing that. They've all got, you know, they, 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 they get nice charts and I like the fact that there's a little bit of a flaw there too. So they get, they get bid when they fall over. And it makes it easier that, uh, 
just psychologically, like every tick down, you're like, yes, buying back at yeah. a lower price for daddy. Come on. It's anti-fragile. Yeah, it is in a way. I mean, it makes it a little easier to stomach drawdowns when you know that. Management's doing something about it. That's that's the nice thing about having a good capital allocator at the helm is that it like you have multiple ways to win there. It seems pretty straightforward. It surprises me that <laughs> there aren't that many companies that do it. But anyway, um, I saw an interesting quote from Buffett over the last week where he said, Heath, I don't know if he was necessarily predicting that the US looks like Japan in 1990, but it kind of sounded like to me that's what he was saying. Hmm. And he said, then he was like, it's not, I think he said that it's not going to be quite that bad as Japan in 1990. But if it is, like, the setup for guys like us, like the deeper value guys, that's usually pretty good for us. Or it looked, it, it worked pretty well for us. Low valuations work okay, particularly if you can find something that's buying back stock. Yeah, I mean, the you had a great paper back in two thousand nine, I think, on Japan, and that that value worked actually quite well. And there were there were multiple cycles within a malaise period of however long it's been for Japan, where things did get cheaper and more expensive, it, especially, I think the dispersions blew out at different points, but it was kind of masked with a kind of quiet average. So no one really was paying attention to what was happening under the hood. And if you were buying at those time periods, like I think you did actually did quite well, um, even with kind of knowing, going nowhere as an index. The, the paper that I had up is just buying on um, price to earnings, price to book, price to cash flow. And then there's some weird ones in there. There's, it's like an academic paper where some of them were, um, they were looking at, there's, there's, there's a few weird metrics in there. They're not really growth metrics. They're just, but anyway, those metrics don't work. So I don't really pay too much attention to them. But um, yeah, so John Battle's got a good question. He was Japan, the global reserve currency in the 1990s. No, and I don't know. There's clearly, like, this is why macro is so hard, right? There's, there, there are like, any number of differences between Japan and the US. And the other one is that Japan had all of those cross shareholdings, so there could be no activism, so they could nobody could take those undervalued companies and right, take them over. The capital. And, yeah, none of that could happen. And so it had to work its way off in a different way. Whereas if that happens, if everything gets really cheap in the States, it won't stay really cheap for long because there's so many guys who are activists or LBO or, or operator types who'll go in there and, and tear it up. So I don't think that Japan is a particularly good proxy, but there's enough value of investors here that at least if it got cheap enough, there'd be there'd be a bid for those things if they went down. I don't yeah, know. and I, I mean I think the the analogy breaks down some too. With I mean the, the U.S. is just a much more dynamic economy, um, and you could make the argument we were even more dynamic when we allowed failure um, and allowed the the changing of ownership of businesses to hands that might have been better stewards of that capital. Um, I think any when we block that, I think we we do look more like Japan then and we do start to become more of a sclerotic and less uh dynamic. So Does that I, happen? I think I think the US can find its roots again in that and um that what, what makes emerge. you think that, that doesn't happen in the States? Um I think we have maybe like better bankruptcy laws for one thing. Uh, I think a lot of it's cultural too. Like we. But, but what makes you think that hasn't happened recently? Like, what's the recent change versus the way it used to be? Uh, I think just cheap debt, and has allowed a lot of companies that probably should have gone under to still keep existing, and uh, you, you know, kind of quote unquote zombie companies that are, <laughs> they're 
earnings are less than interest expense, so they're just accruing more debt to stay alive. Uh, that that I don't think that's healthy for capitalism. I think that's much more akin to like a cancer and probably needs needs to be extricated. Yeah, those low rates can't stay. I mean, it just seems like the rates rates are going up. Well, I mean, who knows? I would have said that quite a while ago, but like we've been talking about, mortgage rates have gone up. You know, like I, that's I, been wild, hasn't it? Mortgage rates are going vertical. Mortgage rates haven't gone up this fast, like in the data, something like that. And now we're like at like a 5%. half a percent a day, or so, like on some days, like just absolutely insane. It doesn't seem to have done much to have cooled the market, though. Yeah, that's the thing about macro that's really hard is there's so many moving. Like if it, there's no inventory, then like okay, well of course it's still gonna be stay hot, right? I guess. And maybe everyone's just trying to get in before the rates get so high that they can't. They want to lock in that mortgage today as, as soon as they can. I don't know. Like there's lots of macros hard. <laughs> there's a question here. Am I long Australia? Um, Australia's like Canada in the sense that there's a big basic materials component to it, which is second to like the financials, the banks and financials are the, is the biggest component in Australia. It's like half the index. Really? And then huh. like a, a third to 20%, I think is basic materials. And then like everything what the, else. What are the big banks in Australia? Like there's really- four big banks. There's, there's four big like commercial banks, um, Commonwealth, National Australia, uh, ANZ, ANZ, and ANZ, as we call it in Australia, and um, I'm blanking on the fourth one. I've never even heard of any of these. So <laughs> they're giant banks. Like that, this is the thing. They're very, very big. They they like to go overseas and make an acquisition every now and again, and just write off the entire acquisition. They're not very right good at buying overseas. <laughs> because in Australia, like that, the, there's this idea that they protect the four big banks. The government protects the four big banks. So there's really, there's no competition, though it's hard to compete, but they never go out of business either. So they're kind of like regulated utilities. Okay. But the, I've done like every now and again, uh, someone does an analysis of it because it's been so long since there's been an, a recession in Australia. Someone does some analysis. Westpac, thanks. Thank you very much. Someone does an analysis where they say, if you take like the last time there was a recession in Australia and you look at the damage to commercial credits and housing credits, and then you translate that forward to, to today to the leverage that they've got in their banks. Like They're a all lot of these zeros. banks are wiped out. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to happen like that. Like I've been, I personally had that view about 15 years ago. Like that's how long it's been. Yeah. It's, it's just been, just been rolling on, keeps on rolling on. I, I don't think it'll be that bad, but who knows? They've got to have a lot of China exposure, right? Isn't that a pretty common thing for Australian companies, especially the commodity based? Yeah, but the commodities are all smashed to pieces already. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you, like that's so, I know we get we get some criticism for talking macro all the time rather than <laughs> Sorry, guys. Than, than individual names. But here's the problem, right? Like, if I look in my screen, all of the stuff that's super super cheap right now, it's all commodities, heavy commodities like BHP, um, Rio, uh, all those kind of names are in the screens, and. Uh, I don't know. It's just, I got a lot of scar tissue on me for owning a lot of that stuff. It's hard to go back in and buy a lot of that stuff. But then that's probably the way everybody else feels too. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you get a a mispriced bet. I'd rather buy it now than than 10 years ago, but I did buy it 10 years ago. So 
What kind of ROEs did the big banks down there get? Do you have any idea? You said they're pretty levered, so maybe it is kind of high. I don't know. I would say close to 20%. I've been shocked to look at some banks and see what the ROEs are over time. Like They're just way higher than I would have ever imagined for something that seems so commodified, which providing money, right? I don't know what does it like lot low, low, low rates. And like well, you can debt. you know your your credit card your credit cards at like what twenty five percent and your your savings accounts at point one. Yeah, that's a, not a bad spread if you can get people into that <laughs> that labyrinth. I guess that's part of the problem. Aussie, Canada, USA commodities need a re-rate versus less appealing jurisdictions. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 it'll be. I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is to the, to the macro picture, but it probably is worth having some of those. I don't even know what the on. questions are. I don't more or less yeah. the answers. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I might be in that boat too. I might be overestimating how much I understand here. Yeah, macro is part of the equation. That's that's kind of what I think too. Like, maybe maybe this maybe the answer is you shouldn't be in stuff where macro is part of the equation. Like, I don't really like energy for that reason. It's just there's one number that you got to get right. Although probably when it went negative, that was a pretty good sign that you should own a bit more ne- bit, bit more energy. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I'm I'm reminded. I bet we will see this again. Which I don't know if you remember this, but like in 2010. There was everybody in the, I think a lot of value guys, especially too, but like they all said like, yeah, you know what? We probably ignored the macro too much. We were just like, oh, we're just bottoms yeah. up stock pickers. I don't know if you remember, like, I think even Einhorn was saying that at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Later too. I would say 2015, 16. And I would, I'm going to guess that that's a cyclical thing as well, where we're going to hear that same story again in, in like, two or three years, there'll be a lot of guys who said like, and maybe it'll be the growth guys this time, like SAS bros who are like, yeah, you know, we probably should have thought about the macro a little bit more. <laughs> it's hard to know. Like Buffett says, ignore it, but then Buffett's clearly- <laughs> but then he'll rattle off like a thousand numbers of different, like, <laughs> right. oh, the, the GDP of uh, Swaziland, you know, in 1987. <laughs> and then he'll go and have a swing at, at silver, like just <laughs> right. as a- or, ch- or, or that uh, the, the Chinese oil company, CNOC. What was yeah. that? PetroChina. PetroChina. Canada rate hike is tomorrow. Market is expecting a 0.5% increase. Neutral rate might go to 25 to 3%. We're at 0.5% now. Yeah. Mm. We're sitting well below. Yeah. The neutral rate. We're sitting well below the neutral rate. That's what I think too. What does that mean? You mean like some natural rate of interest? So I think so. Something like that. Yeah. I what mean, you the got, hell does that even mean though? How do you the, know? What the- well, you don't unless you let the market go and find out. Oh, I'm not Nobody knows it. That's the point. Except for Jay Powell. He knows. Okay. And all the PhDs at Ru- Rudy, Rudy Havenstein knows what the natural, the Nairu is. <laughs> I think that to be like, Rudy's probably got a better idea than anybody else does. Well, he's been around for 200 years now, right? So he's, when was he born in the 1860s or something? Uh, here's up with some questions that oil is the natural rate. Yeah, I like that one. Mm, that might be some truth to that, huh? Yeah, oil spiking. Oil might do the job that the Fed's not doing. Oil might be doing that job. I've heard that said before that the price of oil is the is a, a version of federal funds rate. 
Do you think though that like, so I've thought about this before about the, the energy intensity of an economy and I've tried to look this up before and, you know, if you're going to more intangibles and part of that is sort of saying like, at the end of the day, like we're all just sort of fighting entropy, right? Like we're trying to put in energy into a system. And I mean, energy in a lot of different ways, not just physical energy or the sunshine, you know, hitting earth to provide all the energy that fights entropy on earth. You mean chi. Yes. Right. Uh, so if we are all really at the end of the day, just like sort of rearranging things to pr- make them more productive than they would be in the natural decay of entropy, it can be in the form of information. We're rearranging information. It could be in the form of molecules that we're moving around to, that are more valuable, like useful to us. The, the, the moving molecules around, you know, the atoms of the world requires energy. And so if you're, economy is more based on moving molecules around, then you're going to then have a higher energy intensity. And therefore, probably that oil as a federal funds rate makes more sense for that. But if you're largely intangibles in your economy, which you know we're over half of the, the investment in, in our economy is, is in intangibles now and not in physical CapEx, um, maybe energy intensity, like it makes it maybe less of a of irrelevance to it. I don't know. Like, it's just something I'd sit around and daydream about. I like that idea, but the Bitcoin miners is pretty energy intensive, aren't they? No, I said, I said useful <laughs> uh, energy usage. Uh. Is, that a, is that a product of us just being so... Um, we, we're, we're right at the very top of that tail of, of that chain of like intellectual property where you, you, you sit... You, you, push down all of the stuff that's um, that's easier to do, which tends to be the manufacturing stuff, which is why that gets um, offshore. In other countries, yeah. And you own the IP and the know-how here and the distribution is sort of is coordinated from here at least. But that's still a cost that factors in somehow. And you have to, you have to feed everybody here. You have to get stuff around here. Those costs are still real. Yeah. And I mean, I think that is the, that's the best argument to me against deflation in the next five years is that if we have to reconfigure a supply chain that doesn't include as much of the productive capacity of the rest of the world, it's just going to be more expensive for everything. Yeah. China's on the, uh, going to be on the wrong side of that divide for us anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I hope not for, for everyone's sake. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the the less advantaged you are, the the worse this is going to hurt too. Which is the real bitch of all this stuff is that, you know, Powell's not missing a meal. Powell's not he doesn't give two shits about, you know, how much a banana costs. He's a hundred million dollar man. No, and most how, how much can a banana cost? Like fifteen dollars, twenty five dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just get six. Right. Yeah. So if that's the case, like we're. It's going to hurt the people who can afford it the least to be hurt. And that, that really is bothersome to me. Well, we, we, we've talked about this before, filling up the gas tank in the car. Like it's a, I, did that, I did that cartoon thing where the eyes pop out of my head every time I, pl- I, I pay for it. Yeah, no But, doubt. you know, I do have the, the luxury of not having to worry about it that much. Whereas, But you don't fill it up by half of a tank because you're right. like, well, I don't know where I'm going to get the money for the other half of the tank, right? Right. That's some people's daily existence. That's, that's what I'm saying. I've got that luxury, but there are lots of other like if you divide the the, the cost to fill up the tank by the hourly right hourly wage, it gets it gets scary. Yeah. 
And rent too, like rent's got to normalize to maybe worse there. Yeah. It's got to normalize to housing prices or housing prices have to come back or a bit of both. And I think that's what's happening this year. That I don't think there's been any slowdown in housing prices, or not that I've seen. Maybe there is a, but the um the whatever they call it, the the rent has to the rent's going up like 20, 25% too. The rent's too damn high. The rent is too I damn had it high. Right all along. <laughs> How did he not win? It's a, it's a great slogan. So it's easy to remember. Sticks in the mind. Yeah. How okay. did he not win? Just shows that it's rigged. It's rigged. Need a recount. <laughs> yeah. Real wages aren't up. They're not up that much. I don't know if they're up much at all. That's a funny thing. Like you get a you get a six percent bump, and you just like your, your purchasing power's gone down two percent over the course of the year. It, uh, that's that the official times. number. Yeah. Rent prices have doubled in the last few years. Yeah. Oof. The reshoring of productive capacity is the foundation of the idea that Oz, Canada, US natural resources need to rewrite. Safety of supply is the new most valuable thing. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, just even imagine how much more expensive it's going to be when we when they want to just add more inventory to the whole system, right? Like just in time, we realized was like, a little just too close to the edge. Uh, even just the working capital to create all the inventory that will allow us to run the supply chain might be that might take two percent out of out of profit margin, like in the next ten years. Like I could believe that. Yeah, that's optimistic, probably. <laughs> Real wages flat since about two thousand. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the last time I looked, it was like the peak was. Uh, the peak of um, like 1970 or something, wasn't it? I mean, no, 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 no. It was 2000. It was like Bill Clinton. 2000 was the uh, was the peak of real wages, and then it's been down since then. Uh, well, it certainly feels like it. We almost need a like a technological hail hail mary to connect somewhere to like just make all this stuff fusion. Move. Yeah, fusion or. 3D printing, like something breakthrough that we just like. Oh, okay, never mind. Like the 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 pool has gotten of goods and services has gotten so big now that doesn't matter that we, you know, have all these other problems. It's all solved now. Fusion's the answer, right? Fusion means, um, as you've pointed out to me, unlimited clean drinking water that solves a lot of problems. Food, yeah. Electric cars. Cheap energy is a a prime mover that solves many, many issues. It's probably nuclear might be the even better answer there, but that'd be a good first step. Get some, get some money in there, get some technology in there. Imagine 1950s when we were working on this and it was, they, they were talking about how energy so abundant and it's so cheap that it wouldn't even make sense to meter it. We, it's too cheap to even meter. It doesn't make like, it's just use it as much as you want. That'd be great. Like breathing air. And on that note, we've done it, JT. We made it. Woo! I need a break. I'm going to go lay down for a while. <laughs> yeah, Black Death. Thanks. <laughs> that's, that's the Black the Death also increased real wages in the 1300s. That's not the Unt denominator that you want to shrink. <laughs> until until uh, the king declared that it was illegal for people to move farms or to have the... Uh, or to ask for higher rates. So everybody had to go back to their farms and get paid the same rates, even though there were many fewer of them. Oof. That's tough. Don't do that. Thanks, Amiga.